The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking the Pulse of Undiagnosed Atrial Fibrillation, Pharmacists as a Linchpin of Detection and Team-Based Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KMF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Barry Belusky from the University of New Mexico. Welcome to this educational activity focusing on taking a multidisciplinary and novel approaches to detecting atrial fibrillation in the community setting. Join me in today's discussion are Joe Anderson and Avinash Ashrecker, who are also from the University of New Mexico. So let's begin. Dr. Ashrecker, um, tell us a little bit about what atrial fibrillation is and why are we here today talking about atrial fibrillation? Ash? Great, thanks Barry. A little bit about atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation um, is an abnormal heart rhythm. Um, what we see here on the left side of the panel is normal sinus rhythm. Electricity is generated in the top part of the heart called the atrium and the right atrium and it, it proceeds down through the um, his bundle, which is kind of in the middle there, then it, the ventricles, the big pumping chambers of the heart, then, um, then uh, contract. You can see how it looks like on an EKG on the bottom there. But atrial fibrillation, it's a different beast. Um, it's a, a very common arrhythmia, and we'll talk about some of the risk factors um, in a couple of moments here, but it's a chaotic, disorganized um, atrial electricity, as you can see there on the right panel. Some of that electricity gets into that His bundle and then the ventricles um, subsequently contract, but they contract in an irregular fashion. Um, and you can see that how that's uh, represented in an EKG there. So how common is atrial fibrillation? Um, it's, it's, it's very common. In fact, you know, I've actually had atrial fibrillation myself um, many years ago in medical school. But it is a problem of aging. So in the United States, at least three to six million people have atrial fibrillation. Um, and as we have an aging population, that number is going to increase um, to six to 16 million by the year 2050. There's increased rates of obesity, um, increasing average age are risk factors, as well as hypertension as a risk factor. Um, this costs an immense amount of money per year, six to $26 billion to treat um, annually. So one of the goals of this activity is to identify ways that pharmacists can work collaboratively with other clinical colleagues to really bridge the gap between patients and healthcare professionals to really improve AFib screening, diagnosis, and treatment. But Ash, why is it so important that we identify individuals with uh, atrial fibrillation? So atrial fibrillation or flutter, it's a similar rhythm. It's generated a little bit differently, but the risk factors that are the same are associated with increased rates of morbidity and mortality. So one thing is um, these rhythms, atrial fibrillation, can cause tachycardia or a fast heart rate, and that can be associated with ischemia, not enough blood flow to the heart muscle, or even um, heart failure, a weakening of the heart muscle and um, developing symptoms. Cardiovascular hospitalization increases two to threefold. Thromboembolism or stroke um, increases fivefold, depending on your risk factors. We'll talk about those um, later in the presentation. But death increases as well, a twofold increase in death. If we look at the right side of this panel, you'll see that um, women is um, in yellow, men are on the right. Um, there's an increased cumulative stroke risk in women compared to men. Um, and this is uh, also delineated when we talk about a scoring for atrial fibrillation and the risk of uh, stroke and systemic embolism. 
So atrial fibrillation prevalence increases with age. Um, so as we have an aging population, um, we're seeing more atrial fibrillation. I did say that there's more stroke in women than men, but there's actually um, more men than women that have stroke. If you can see here, the black bars are men, the um, red bars are women. But as we know, women live longer, longer than men. And so over uh, time, there's a, a more accumulation of uh, women that are the burden of living with atrial fibrillation than men. So with such a significant risk in stroke, it seems that it would be very important to prevent and detect atrial fibrillation. Um, Ash, what are potentially some of the risk factors and symptoms associated with uh, atrial fibrillation? Um, thanks for the question, Barry. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's risk factors that have been really well defined um, from research models um, and historically. Um, there's some that are non-modifiable, like age. Um, we can't change your age, but there are modifiable risk factors So um, to develop atrial fibrillation as well as controlling some of the risk. Um, hypertension, high blood pressure, heart disease um, is a modifiable risk factor um, that can be treated. Heart failure, hyperthyroidism, excessive alcohol um, intake, obesity, and sleep apnea. Add diabetes to this as well. Um, and that's a modifiable risk factor that can be treated. If we're talking about symptoms, you know, the general patient, what are they feeling? Um, the interesting thing about atrial fibrillation is you can feel a lot of things. You can feel palpitations, that's like kind of a fluttering or an accelerated or a regular heartbeat. You can have fatigue if your heart rate is fast or irregular, um, that could uh, represent tiredness. Um, you can faint. Um, usually this doesn't happen. It can happen in the, in the elderly patient or those that have a um, corresponding a significant heart disease, they can sometimes syncopize or faint. You can have dyspnea or shortness of breath. Um, at rest or with physical activity, sometimes lightheadedness, this is pretty common. And then um, those that have uh, coronary artery disease um, may not have good coronary perfusion during times of rapid tachycardia in atrial fibrillation, and they can actually have angina as well. But many patients are asymptomatic. You know, I think I began saying, you know, I, I had atrial fibrillation when I was in medical school, but I went hours and hours probably a half a day in atrial fibrillation, not feeling it at all. And that's not very uncommon. AFib can have a triad of symptoms, which is the racing, fluttering heart, palpitations, shortness of breath, some lightheadedness and dizziness, but you can have no symptoms at all. Um, there are some data to show that those in atrial fibrillation only know about half the time they're in atrial fibrillation. So you can't really ask a patient, do you feel it? Um, do you feel these palpitations? If they say no, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have atrial fibrillation. I think this is extremely important because, you know, obviously if a patient comes to clinic or to the pharmacy, they're short of breath, dizzy, um, that could be atrial fibrillation. But as I was going to ask is, what about patients without symptoms? Um, we know people with symptoms are at risk for, you know, really stroke and potential death. But what about these asymptomatic patients? You know, that's a great question. Um, it's really difficult to treat a patient that doesn't feel bad. Um, you know, uh, many patients say that I don't feel my AFib, I don't need to worry about it. But if you can see on the right side of this panel, this is a graph that shows symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Asymptomatic is in red. So patients uh, with events is on uh, the y-axis. And you can see there's actually a numerically higher um, 
increase in patients with events that are asymptomatic versus symptomatic. We should note that there's really no difference statistically between these two lines, which tells us whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, you are still risk of having um, cardiovascular events, stroke or systemic embolism. Yikes, that is really not good news. Joe, um, how common is this asymptomatic or undetected atrial fibrillation? Yeah, thanks, Barry. And as Ash mentioned, uh, the risk of stroke in asymptomatic and symptomatic patients is about the same. So a lot of recent research is focused on trying to identify uh, the rates of uh, a silent or asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. And estimates vary, but in general, from single time point screening in patients who are 65 or older, undiagnosed AFib is about 1.4%. Um, more intensive screening programs, uh, such as um, screening twice a day over a two-week period, the incidence is slightly higher, around 3%. Um, and I note uh, our recent experience with both our opportunistic screenings at our student-driven health fairs and systematic screenings in community pharmacy settings were on the higher end. And you know this might be reflective of a higher-risk population. Um, and, I, and I would like to add that a recent study called the Vital AF was just recently published um, in a similar population, patients over the age of 65, but seen in a primary care clinic. Um, and they utilized a single lead ECG screening or just usual care. And they found the incidence of asymptomatic AFib in the screening group to, to be about 1.7%, um, very consistent with previous studies, um, and, and versus one percent uh, 6% in usual care group, um, and usual care consisting of, of pulse palpation or auscultation. So this asymptomatic or undetected atrial fibrillation seems to be you know, probably pretty important in managing uh, atrial fibrillation. And it seems like we could be missing a lot of patients diagnosing them um, with atrial fibrillation if they have no symptoms. How do we identify or catch these patients? Yeah, thanks, Barry. And that and that's the big question: is how do we identify these individuals? And um, you you could one of two methods: you can take a systematic approach to screening or an opportunistic approach to screening. And so, in a systematic appro approach, you're taking a more targeted group, a higher risk population, and then screening those individuals. So, those studies that I was mentioning, for example. Uh, they t chose individuals who were over the age of 65, as Ash mentioned, the risk of AFib goes up with age. Um, and then they also looked at, or you could target individuals with those risk factors for heart failure, such as hypertension, heart failure, diabetes, et cetera. Um, so uh, an opportunistic screening would be more, more like a health fair, uh, where you, t you screen all comers, regardless of, of risk. Um, and so... Um, at that point in time, you're hopefully combining it with additional screening for risk factors such as high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera. The, and this is an example that I alluded to earlier with an opportunistic screening that we've conducted at health fairs around um, our community. And, and we found in the general population that came to the screening um, about a, a 2.3% incidence of atrial fibrillation detected with our uh, single lead ECG screening device. Um, looking at the higher risk patients, um, we, we saw um, the majority of these patients who were screened positive did have higher risk factors for stroke. And that's important. And that's why we were doing the screenings because 
these are the individuals who are at higher risk than for stroke. As you know, um, the, in the old days, uh, you know, screening was um, not easily conducted. So uh, if you were at a medical office, you had to have a 12-lead EKG. Um, and so patients who perhaps on uh, with pulse palpation or auscultation were determined to possibly have atrial fibrillation, you would have to, if you had any, a 12-lead EKG in the office, uh, it, perform that or you would have to send them off to perhaps a hospital or another provider for the 12-lead EKG screening. Or uh, for those individuals who you might suspect have uh, a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, you might have to hook them up to a Holter monitor for 24 or 48 hours. Uh, but you know, with advances in technology, screening has become much more easy and efficient. Um, we have a multitude of devices now that can be used for screening. Uh, many people are familiar with the smartwatches that can be worn and used for screening for atrial fibrillation. There are um, advertisements on TV now for devices that uh, individuals can purchase um, and uh, screen themselves for uh, ECGs. And so these various devices have differences in sensitivity and specificity for um, picking up atrial fibrillation. So, Ash, um, is there anything that you think needs to be added here with regard to these various devices in terms of sensitivity and specificity? Joe, thanks for your question. You know, this is really important. As we've seen um, uh, in the previous slides, there are new advances in how we can detect atrial fibrillation. Um, it started with just palpating a pulse to auscultating with a stethoscope to these really cumbersome monitors that we could either do a point of time EKG, which is just about, you know, five, 10 seconds of time, or um, these, these, these bulky Holter monitors that we would have people wear for a day or two. Um, the monitors that you can see here, there's many kind of monitors here, but the ideal um, method of screening has really high sensitivity as well as really high specificity. And if you look at pulse palpation, for example, uh, there's 94% sensitivity. So this tells you that it's really good at ruling out if you don't have atrial fibrillation, but its specificity is only about 72%. It's really not great at ruling it in. Um, that's because people mostly have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and they're not always in it. Um, but if you look at some of the other devices, um, we can look at the Alive Core Cardia Heart Monitor. You know, its specificity and sensitivity are much higher. And you can see all on down the line, we've really improved um, with uh, specificity and sensitivity. Um, and I think that's why uh, it's probably a better way to start looking for atrial fibrillation in our, in our community. Thank you, Ash. Uh, technology is certainly amazing, but, but Barry, is it reasonable to screen? And are there guidelines in regard to population screening for asymptomatic or undetected atrial fibrillation? So when we... Think about population screening. We have to always balance risk to benefit and also feasibility. You know, for screening to, to be enabled to screen a population, it needs to be inexpensive, easy to use, high positive predictive value. And if we look at today, looking at to screen for atrial fibrillation with the devices available with the new technology, it really meets this criteria. It's less than $200. You can 
have the device. Um, it's easy to use within 30 seconds. Anyone can do it. And as you and Ash pointed out, um, it works pretty well in detecting atrial fibrillation. So from that standpoint, either opportunistic or systematic screening is, is very much feasible. And are there positive outcomes? As Ash mentioned earlier, you have atrial fibrillation and you have risk factors. You're at risk, high risk for stroke. And so, and importantly, and, and luckily, we have very efficient, very good pharmacotherapy, pharmacotherapeutic option anticoagulants that we can reduce our stroke risk and mortality. So from that positive outcome aspect, it is certainly something we want to consider to screen on a population basis. As with anything, there's always you know, a negative aspects to consider, um, but you always want to consider, are these acceptable outcomes? Um, there is a cost, it's not free, there's time involved, um, you increase potentially patient stress, could increase office visits, overdiagnosis, potential for unnecessary diagnosis, uh, diagnostic testing and treatment, and um, also, we don't yet have outcome data to show improved outcomes with population screening. Now, if we look at the guidelines, and we look at the guidelines here in the United States from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, they state that the current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening atrial fibrillation. But we also, in the guidelines, they also mention we still need to consider pulse palpitation to be part of routine or usual care. A couple of things to note here. In the review by the task force, it has to be known that there was no eligible studies were found that evaluated harm in screening patients for AF as compared to no screening. And as importantly, as I mentioned earlier, we have no outcome data. And Joe has already talked about the vital AF, similar detect detection rate with uh, two different types of usual care versus single lead ECG. But of note, in the usual care group, they did include automated devices, palpitation, and oscitation as detection devices. Look at other guidelines around the world. The European Society of Cardiology does recommend opportunistic AF screening by pulse assessment or by EG rhythm strip in patients 65 years of age or older. Guidelines also note that the good setting for um, AFib screening include pharmacies and community screening at special events. Um, we look at the Australian Heart Foundation. They have a similar sort of recommendation, opportunistic point of care screening in the clinic or community setting um, should be conducted in people aged 65 years or more. Now, as we have mentioned, patients with atrial fibrillation may have significant risk for stroke that can be prevented with anticoagulant therapy. Joe, how can we find these patients that you know may be asymptomatic, walk around atrial fibrillation, don't know they have it, in a sustainable and importantly a portable approach? Yeah, thanks, Barry, and that's a that's a huge question. I would like to think that pharmacists are an answer, um, and and uh, pharmacists' role in this process depends on their location. So, um, pharmacists who are in the community are an excellent source, uh, excellent resource. Um, they're everywhere. Uh, they're in rural, urban, underserved areas. Um, it's, it's said that 90% of our population lives within five miles of a community pharmacy. So we're accessible. Um, and, and so the community pharmacist could be then used uh, for, for a source of screening. 
um, using the devices that we've mentioned um, through uh, opportunistic screenings um, or even systematic screenings and targeting a higher risk patient population for screening. Um, pharmacists in the clinic setting working with other providers can be utilized to um, screen, but really to manage risk factors. So uh, hopefully preventing the development of atrial fibrillation by better control of those risk factors. And then once a patient does develop atrial fibrillation and requires anticoagulation, pharmacists are uniquely suited to uh, run the anticoagulation clinics and control uh, the, the levels of anticoagulation and avoid uh, dangerous drug-drug interactions and other interactions with those agents. So um, we really believe that community pharmacies, there's a golden opportunity and they are certainly an untapped resource with regard to screening for atrial fibrillation. Um, as I mentioned, 90% of the population lives within five miles of a community pharmacy and 90% of the population also visits a community pharmacy at least once a year. And so that's an opportunity at each of those visits to educate patients about the risks of atrial fibrillation, um, the risk and warning signs of stroke, for example, but also to screen for the asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. Um, and, and so this is what we're really trying to uh, approach is getting community pharmacists more involved. To do that, uh, we have to have a sustainable model, model uh, that can overcome some of the barriers that would be seen in uh, the pharmacy setting or even in the primary care setting. And so any kind of screening uh, that would be done needs to be time efficient um, and labor efficient. Um, there has to be a perceived value for the patient to undergo these screenings or want to seek out these screenings. Uh, there has to be a value for the pharmacist to provide these screenings. And, and really we want uh, providers to see the value if a patient is screened in a, in a phar pharmacy and comes into their um, office setting with a res positive result. We want them to understand what that means and that they have to then, uh, they should then uh, pursue additional uh, uh, assessment of the atrial fibrillation. And then um, in terms of cost, it has to be at least cost neutral uh, for, for pharmacies to be able to do the screenings. And so um, what we've taken, you know, we, we would encourage community pharmacists to reach out to um, local colleges of pharmacy, maybe colleges of nursing, schools of nursing, schools of medicine. Many of them have online training programs that they can utilize, that pharmacists can utilize for their staff. We have that training. We offer free CE uh, training for pharmacy technicians as well as pharmacists. Um, there's a lot of resources on the internet. The American Heart Association, for example, has numerous resources um, that individuals can go through and train on atrial fibrillation. And then what's really important for community pharmacists to, is to develop an efficient workflow pattern. Um, and it, you know, this is, we realize that Pharmacies, uh, pharmacists, pharmacy staff, they're very busy. We understand that. Uh, but, but the screening really only takes less than one minute. Um, and so if it becomes part of the routine workflow, um, it re really does add much additional time to their normal work. Um, and so um, we would encourage pharmacy staff to be trained on how to screen. Does it, it could be a clerk, it could be a technician. Um, if the pharmacy has an intern, an intern certainly can do the screenings. 
the pharmacists really just need to be engaged if there's a possible atrial fibrillation in which they can talk to the patient and explain what atrial fibrillation is, what the risks are associated with atrial fibrillation, and then importantly, encouraging the patient to go see their primary care provider um, to, to be able to be tested for, for additional tests for atrial fibrillation, and then ultimately management of atrial fibrillation. And so, um, you know, first and foremost, you have to have all your staff on board and trained uh, with, with regard to screening for atrial fibrillation. And we would say uh, you should really designate an AFib champion in your store. One, a person who's the go-to person uh, for atrial fibrillation and can coordinate either these um, systematic screenings or the opportunistic screenings. And um, in terms of uh, recruitment, patient recruitment, um, we would simply say, you know, place signs, signs around your pharmacy. Uh, we have signs we've created, you know, that say take, you know, takes 30 seconds to potentially save a life. Um, that might capture a, a patient's uh, attention and they'll ask, you know, what is this? What is this about? Um, and then you can, it's an opportunity to talk to them about the screening. Um, you know, if they're waiting for a prescription to be, you know, filled, um, screen them have your clerk or technician offer them some screening. Um, and so, um, and then it's important for community pharmacists to really partner with local primary care providers and talk to them about what it is you're doing, that you are periodically offering these screenings and what it means when they get a positive. Um, it's not, you know, a co confirmation of atrial fibrillation. It's for them, the you know, the primary care provider then to follow up. Uh, and do additional testing to, to determine if there is atrial fibrillation or not, um, and then what therapies to uh, initiate. Joe, um, that's a really critical issue. You, you brought you know, a real critical point there on establishing the collaboration with the local provider, especially in rural settings. Ash, um, can you talk a little bit more about this and, and how you see these collaborations perhaps coming together? Yeah, thanks for the question. This is a team a team approach to this. You know, uh, this kind of testing in the community, screening in the community is very helpful as an initial step. Um, but that's just the initial step. If, if atrial fibrillation is possibly found, um, collaboration with a, a general practitioner, a primary care provider, or even a specialist um, is essential. So those kind of collaborations need to begin before the screening. This is, these screening processes begin in the community pharmacy. And uh, I think Joe said it best, you know, collaboration with the School of Pharmacy or a School of Medicine um, is very helpful. That can be done you know, telephonically, uh, teleconsultation, even through telemedicine, but a collaboration needs to begin. Um, so a patient, when screened in, has somewhere to go. Thanks, Ash and Barry. Um, the other point I, I would talk about is cost effectiveness with this model. And, um, and, and really, um, you know, re there is no model for reimbursement for doing these types of screenings, but it's really a value-added service that a pharmacy is providing to their patients. And because of that ser service, hopefully, um, it leads to retention of those patients as customers of theirs, as clients of theirs. Um, and so, you know, periodically offering these screenings, uh, you know, maybe three, four times a year, year or as we mentioned, um, you know, targeting more systematically uh, you know, higher risk patients and offering those individual screenings. You know, again, that, that, that's cost effective because if you can prevent one stroke 
that more than pays for itself. Um, and, um, and, and then another value that uh, pharmacies can um, uh, accrue with this service is, is medication adherence, educating the patients about the importance of anticoagulation therapy and making sure that they're adhering to their therapy. Uh, patients who take their medications, uh, the drugs become more effective, obviously, um, but they're also more, more reliable clients and they come back to the pharmacy, as we mentioned, multiple times. Um, the devices themselves are, are very, very reasonable. Under $200 to purchase one of these devices and set up a, a screening service. So um, here at the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy, we've taken many of these approaches and have developed a sustainable and portable model for population screening for AFib in the community setting. Barry, can you briefly describe this working model? Oh, absolutely. Um, so as Joe mentioned, you know, one of the models we use is um, work in uh, student-driven health fairs, and we'll talk a little bit at the end here um, about how to perhaps set that up. The other approach we have taken, and that the health fair is more opportunistic approach, we've taken a very much more systematic approach in the community pharmacy setting. In this setting, we've established our API students, our P4 pharmacy students, and have them screen for patients. Um, we do it in a, in a systematic way where we identify high-risk patients uh, based on age and medication profile, looking for cardiovascular-type medications or um, uh, diabetic-type medication. We have the API students perform the assessment. Our, our, our next level is going to be teaching pharmacy techs to do this. And if no AF is reported, participants are counseled by the students on the results, and, and we provide education, and they're on their way. So the pharmacist you know, time-efficient model. In this model, the pharmacist is not even involved in this process, so very efficient for the pharmacist. If AF is reported, then, uh, part, and then the patients are counseled by both the pharmacist and the student. We ask permission to call their primary care physician um, to discuss the results with them and ideally set up appointment. If patients don't want to do that, um, we give them a Dear Doctor card, and I'll, I'll show you an example of that in the next few slides, explain the results. And we counsel the patient on atrial fibrillation and stroke in general. And we do this with American Heart Association flyer. And importantly, anyone that we screen, we provide this AFib stroke education because we think it's important to provide the community uh, avenue for stroke education and to promote stroke education and understanding the risk for stroke and the signs and symptoms for stroke. Now, our model, so we train our students, we train the pharmacists um, in, the, in the community settings that we're reaching out to. We have online module training video, uh, videos, comp -C exams, hands-on training. As Joe mentioned earlier, we provide CE not only for pharmacists, but potentially pharmacy technicians who are interested. And you can see there how to log on. And you're more than welcome to take the course and, and get CE credit for that. There's no charge for this. Um, for our API students, it's a requirement. It's part of their API rotation. They have to do these assessments. Similar to medication adherence calls, patient counseling, it's part of the um, API experience. Uh, data is reported back uh, to the faculty champion and to our experiential office. And we provide the equipment, screen forms, signage, and, and documents all provided by the college. 
We use the Cardia uh, mobile device, as you see here. Again, 30 seconds, we have a rhythm strip, and we have an answer with that. Very efficient, easy to use. Uh, patients think it's uh, kind of interesting. Here's our data collection form. You can see here, you can read this yourself. We have our screening materials, we have our results, time frame. And of note, when we see possible atrial fibrillation, we repeat the testing to make sure that we see it again. Here's our Dear Doctor card. It's a two-sided card. On one side, we tell the physician what we did, what device we used, uh, the results we found, and contact information, how they can contact us if they have questions. On the other side, we have the results in more layman terms. And importantly, one of the things we counsel our patients on is um, you know, get a hold of their doctor as soon as possible to discuss what results uh, that we found today. Here's um, some of the materials we use. On the left-hand side is our patient handout. Um, again, this comes American Heart Association. We download that. It also comes in Spanish language uh, also, and we go through this. Every patient we see, we talk about stroke and AFib. So we, we think this alone is a valuable service. Middle one is, um, Joe mentioned um, understanding value of what we're doing. So we give patients postcards uh, to fill out and send back to us. Uh, it's prepaid um, to get their assessment of, of what they think about this uh, type of screening. And as Joe also mentioned, we have signage we, we pass out, promoting our Know Your Heart, Know Your Rhythm um, program that we have. So as I mentioned, another opportunity, a great opportunity that we've took advantage on is our student-driven health fairs. Um, and going to the community setting is, 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 is a great way to really connect with the community. But there's a number of planning and other considerations um, when, when developing these events. One is, what kind of population do you want to target? Do you want it systematic or opportunistic? Got to think about advertising, local papers, signage, flyers. A lot of great places to do this. Um, community events, senior centers. We've done it at consulates, student unions, festivals. Um, we were recently at the Lobo Women's uh, Basketball Game doing this. Very su successful. Workplaces are great, including community pharmacies. You can promote screening day, and by doing so, not only are you providing service to the community, but you're increasing your foot traffic into the pharmacies, which is also a good thing. It's important to designate a leader and make sure you get enough volunteers. Again, students are great to work with, and, and, and they actually can lead this. Um, Want to make sure you have a good training plan, um, equipment, and remember, promote education. We're educating the public on atrial fibrillation and stroke. A um, lot of logistics. Uh, you got to have supplies, equipment, chairs, tables, sanitizers, swabs, pens, signage, forms, education materials. Now, what, as part of this uh, program today, we provided a checklist that we've developed and, and added onto to think about how to um, promote these community events, and um, you'll be able to uh, download this after the presentation. Here are some pictures from our events. If you look in the lower right-hand side, this is at the Lobos Women um, basketball game at the pit. As you see, it's, it's highly su successful. We have blood pressure screening, screening for diabetes, and AFib screenings. And um, you know the fans just loved it. Um, if you look on the left-hand side, we've partnered with Nagasaki University in Japan and is now doing this in Nagasaki Prefecture in Japan. And, and this was at a shopping mall last, oh, well, actually, it was a couple of years ago now, 
um, that we did this and we're going to go back in October and repeat this. Very exciting. So Joe mentioned this earlier, you know, for these programs to be successful, you have to have, people have to feel that there's a value to this. When we look at patient value, there's two studies in community pharmacies and one healthcare screening study that nearly 100% of patients were very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with the screening. And they, they thought importantly that screens were worth their time and were important. When we look at pharmacist perception, high value professionally, and they also feel it's a high value to pharmacy. And um, if you read some of those comments, you know, it's a way to connect to customers in another way to patients, help patients in another way to contribute back on and to serve the community. So, you know, so we talked about screens and pharmacies and health fairs. Um, I, I know we've alluded to this earlier. What about screenings in the clinic setting? Um, Ash, is this feasible? Can we do this? What are your thoughts? Uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, I think it's important. We've demonstrated that with, um, with the slides. Um, 12 lead EKGs are often not done routinely though in the clinic. Um, there's reimbursement challenges. If somebody's complaining of symptoms, you can always do a 12 lead EKG. Um, and a new onset or asymptomatic atrial fibrillation obviously can be missed as we talked about. Um, um, only 50% of people feel when they're in atrial fibrillation. But you know, this could possibly be circumvented if we screened in the waiting room. You know, this would be a, a screening service um, gratis to the patient uh, with mobile devices while they're in the waiting room. Um, I think it's probably important to um, establish a workflow pattern for every patient. Um, technology uh, can be used. Uh, this can be done with an MA or a nursing or pharmacy student um, at the point of care of assessment for each patient. Or patients can even self-screen. Um, there's a possibility that uh, these are down, some of them are downloadable apps or some of them will have um, mobile devices that they're wearing, such as smartphones. Um, and then obviously there's still pulse palpation that can be used um, and that's probably done in a clinical examination anyways. Um, so if atrial fibrillation is detected, 12-lead um, EKGs um, are appropriate at that time, and then laboratory testing that can be ordered by the clinicians, such as thyroid testing, probably some chemistries as well. Um, and then confirmation is very important. So if it's screened in the pharmacy um, or in the waiting room, it's going to have to be confirmed. And then we're going to talk about in the next couple of slides here, Barry, about anticoagulation and appropriate therapies. And then finally, referring to an anticoagulation clinic. So we've talked a lot about screening by, you know, pharmacies, by clinics, um, by students, by health professionals. Joe, can patients just screen themselves? Yeah, absolutely, Barry, they can. And, and we've talked about all, all the different devices that are now available. Um, and they're available not, not just for healthcare providers, but for the general public. And so, um, we know that, you know, the, the general public has these smartwatches. Uh, there's blood pressure devices that can sense irregular, uh, rhythms. There's, of course, the, uh, uh, handheld ECG devices that now are being marketed to individuals. So, um, yes, they can screen. Um, they can even do their own self pulse check. They can be educated to and how to do that. Um, so, but what's important for us as healthcare professionals to know is that these devices are out there. Um, and it's really important for us to educate our 
patients and the population that these are just screening devices um, and educate the patients in the population about what is atrial fibrillation and what, what are the risks associated with it and that they should seek out um, confirmation of the diagnosis with a primary care provider or a specialist. Um, and so, you know, that's a critical piece, I think, in terms of following up with these patients who may be screening for themselves. There appears to be a tremendous opportunity to screen to engage patients with atrial fibrillation, it seems like. When patients do present with atrial fibrillation, um, we have to treat them. What should we as healthcare practitioners think about in regards to uh, treating atrial fibrillation, Ash? Um, thanks for the question. You know, we'll briefly talk about treatment here. Um, so atrial fibrillation treatment, we talked about why it's important to treat. There's a five-fold increase in the risk of stroke systemic embolisms, both in men and women. So all atrial fibrillations must be assessed. So after they screen in the, at the community pharmacy or at a health fair, then they're confirmed their diagnosis by seeing a clinician or practitioner. I mean, you know, we talk about three parts of atrial fibrillation treatment, rate control, the, how fast or slow the heart rate is, rhythm control, whether it's atrial fibrillation or normal sinus rhythm, and then finally, stroke prevention, which is probably the most important because um, for, not only does it cause mortality, but incredible morbidity as well. And the way we look at that is we have scoring systems for stroke risk. Everybody doesn't have the same stroke risk. I told you all that I had atrial fibrillation when I was in medical school. It was a one-time event, it never came back. And my CHAD score or CHAD's vascular score was zero, which meant that my risk for having a stroke or systemic embolism was as same as the normal population. So I didn't get any anticoagulation at that time. Um, but there's two scoring systems that we use, the CHADS-2 system or the CHADS-2 vascular system. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail. But all use selected clinical characteristics to predict risk of stroke. And all the scores provide a rough estimate of the risk of thrombosis or stroke in a population at similar risk as the patient being reviewed. So what that looks like is this. This is the following. This is com combining both the CHADS-2 as well as the CHADS vascular score. So you can see these risks increase your risk of stroke or systemic embolism. If you have congestive heart failure with LV dysfunction, either an EF of less than 40% or a, a class two heart failure or worse, hypertension, age greater than 75, diabetes or stroke. Stroke gives you a score of two. Um, we've extended that to a CHADS vascular scoring system that adds vascular disease, prior myocardial infarction, peripheral artery disease or aortic plaque. Um, a, a slightly lower age group there with a lower score. And then um, gender, uh, the sex category is pretty important. Remember, we did look at the risk of women versus men developing stroke or systemic embolism. Um, the female gender has a higher preponderance if they have atrial fibrillation um, developing stroke or systemic embolism, which is why there's an added point there. And so what that looks like from a guidelines perspective is in 2019, the American Heart Association, American Cardiology, College of Cardiology and the Heart Rhythm Society had an update to the AFib management guidelines. So it's a class one, A or B, um, to treat uh, atrial fibrillation for, uh, with an anticoagulant. Um, two or greater um, for men or three or greater for women. Um, and these are the anticoagulants that are recommended. Uh, warfarin, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and doxaban. 
You know, but all anticoagulants aren't equal. Um, and over time, we've had further um, data that shows that some anticoagulants are better than other anticoagulants. It's taken a while to collect this data. The true workhorse forever has been Coumadin or Warfarin. And this is a comparison of the efficacy and safety of new oral anticoagulants, um, or the NOACs, novel oral anticoagulants, with warfarin in patients with AFib. This, these are meta-analyses of randomized trials. And a lot of the uh, comparisons of the NOACs versus warfarin cross the line of unity, but we see um, a lot of safety um, in the NOACs. We can see um, a a, a significant decrease in intracranial hemorrhage as well as um, hemorrhagic stroke when we're looking at the NOACs compared to warfarin. And so what that looks like from a guideline perspective is now it's a class 1A to consider NOACs. The dibigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and doxaban are recommended over warfarin um, in patients that are eligible with atrial fibrillation. And remember, this is all non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And valvular atrial fibrillation would be those that have moderate to severe mitral stenosis or a mechanical valve. And those patients still have an indication for treatment with anticoagulation, but with warfarin um, instead of one of the novel oral anticoagulants. When we give a patient an anticoagulant, we worry about two things. One, we want to thin their blood, as we say, um, to make sure that we reduce their chance of stroke or systemic embolism, but we don't want to overly thin their blood, so they, they have bleeding. So we have a, a scoring system we call has blood here, and you can just read the risk factors there. Um, for those that practice uh, medicine and the pharmacists out there, this doesn't seem very unusual that these risk factors would increase your chances of bleeding. So hypertension, abnormal kidney or um, liver function, previous stroke, bleeding tendencies, having a previous history of labile, INR, older age, concomitant drugs that actually um, have issues with bleeding as well, like NSAIDs, um, alcohol. Um, all of this can be tabulated to a score, and those with the greatest score bleed more. Those with the score of zero to two indicate a pretty low risk of bleeding, but greater than three the, um, the indicates a risk of bleeding that's increased, and that increases as that score increases as well. So what we really need to do is weigh the need for um, um, anticoagulation, likely with a novel oral anticoagulant for those with non-valvular AFib, and, and, and balance that with this has blood score. Um, the important part is we really should treat these patients um, that are at higher risk. So, as you point out nicely, um, there's a lot to consider when we're managing patients with atrial fibrillation, including risk factors and pharmacotherapeutic considerations. Ash, how do we approach a patient-centered care uh, approach from an interdisciplinary team perspective? Uh, thanks for the question, Barry. You know, I think what we've demonstrated between Joe, Barry, and myself, that atrial fibrillation is going to be found in multiple settings. Um, it, can, it can be found at a health fair. It could be found in an intensive care unit. It could be found um, in cardiac rehab. So the way we're actually working now is there's a lot of disparate care. Um, in the right panel, you can see that, you know, the patient with atrial fibrillation is kind of floating around to these different clinics, whether it's electrophysiology, primary care, 
community pharmacy. Um, they're even sometimes, many times, actually diagnosed in sleep um, clinic or at uh, their sleep uh, their sleep study because they have ongoing EKG throughout the night. So we need to replace this with a more coordinated care. So while the diagnosis or at least the screening of atrial fibrillation may occur in many settings, and it will begin with the patient, we should have a more coordinated level of care um, between the patient and um, the clinical settings. And those clinical settings are gonna have to also be linked up with treatment settings, as well as our community pharmacies to dispense those medications and you know, follow those patients as well. You know, If the screening happened at a community pharmacy, um, Joe and Barry are our pharmacists. I would think that that patient would be tied to that community pharmacy. And they have some, and that pharmacy has some commitment to that patient as well. And I'm sure that um, the, uh, the entire AFib community would benefit from that as well. So, so Joe, and this integrative multidisciplinary team approach um, is really important. It follows many different um, type of services and, and, and professionals. Where do you see us, the pharmacists, having the greatest impact in this team setting? Yeah, thanks, Barry. Uh, and, and as both you and Ash have alluded to previously, you know, one of the roles of community pharmacists is just screening, screening for atrial fibrillation. So, um, you know, using those devices and providing the opportunistic or systematic screening. But also, really important role is just education. Uh, you touched on this earlier, Barry, but um, educating the patient about atrial fibrillation, what is it? Um, you know, if they're performing the screening at home, they've got their own um, smartwatch, you know, informing them about the risks of atrial fibrillation and the import importance of going and seeing their primary care provider for confirmation of the atrial fibrillation. Um, and then educating the patient about the risk of stroke. Um, what are the warning signs of stroke? Um, and what should they do should they develop any of those warning signs? Um, and then educating them, of course, about the, the medication treatments that Ash talked about, the, whether it be rhythm control, rate control, or anticoagulation. Uh, you know, what are those therapies and, and why is it important to take those therapies? So uh, that goes along with it. another key role, which would be monitoring for adherence to therapy um, and making sure the patients are adherent to that therapy. You know, I agree, I agree, Joe. Um, it all begins with the patient. You know, if that patient is educated, um, they'll have an idea of what that means, what the next steps are, and then when they're, when they're screened and if they screen in, you know, following up with their clinician um, to determine what therapies are necessary. You know, there are times that, you know, anticoagulation is not necessary. It's not, it's not very common because atrial fibrillation is usually diagnosed in our older patients and the anticoagulation is needed. Um, but also talking to your um, cardiologist or your primary care physician, um, there are some complex management issues that sometimes um, are necessary, but the first part is educating your patient, getting them diagnosed, and um, following up uh, with their clinician. Uh, as Ash and Joe have nicely discussed, um, we have to have an interdisciplinary team approach because um, atrial fibrillation is complex. Now, another critical aspect that you mentioned, Joe, is medication adherence. If patients don't take their medication, they're not gonna prevent stroke associated with atrial fibrillation. 
Um, can you talk a little bit more about medication adherence, the importance of that in atrial fibrillation, and sort of how do we improve or general factors on approaches to medication adherence? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Barry. Um, you know, and, and as you mentioned, if you if you're not taking your medication, it doesn't work. And it's really important with regard to anticoagulation therapy, for example, um, because the, the greatest risk with atrial fibrillation is stroke. Um, and and with, with proper anticoagulation therapy, we can reduce the risk of stroke anywhere from 40 to 80%, but you have to take the medication. And so studies, unfortunately, have shown that adherence rates with anticoagulation therapy vary, or I should say non-adherence rates vary from anywhere from 25% to 40%. And importantly, in those studies, they're showing that in those patients who are not adherent to their anticoagulant therapy, it does increase the risk of stroke and unfortunately, the risk of death. Um, and so very important to adhere to, to therapy. And, and when we talk about adherence, medication adherence, or, or really any medical adherence, it's really a complex um, condition, uh, if you will. And so there's a multitude of factors, many times multiple factors within one given patient. Um, and this, this slide goes over several of those uh, potential factors for non-adherence, such as social and economic factors. Um, sometimes, you know, patients have, have low health literacy levels, and so they may not be able to understand why, uh, you know, they're taking a particular medication or how to take a particular medication. Um, insurance sometimes, uh, you know, if they don't ha have proper insurance, they may not be able to afford the, the uh, newer anticoagulation uh, medications, or they may not be able to afford transportation to get to their clinic appointments. Um, there are healthcare system factors. Um, studies show that if, if patients perceive a trusting relationship between themselves and their providers, they're more apt to adhere to therapy. They're more apt to come to their appointments. Um, and so communication, proper communication, plays a key role in improving adherence. Um, there's condition-related factors. Uh, you know, we just talked about asymptomatic, how atrial fibrillation is many times asymptomatic. Well, if you're asymptomatic and now, now you're asked to take a medication that has possible adverse effects and side effects, you may not be convinced of the need to take that medication. So once again, going back to the importance of, of communication with that pa and education with that patient. Um, and so there, again, are a multitude of factors, sometimes physical factors, vision impairment, um, swallowing difficulties, trying to give them a formulation of the medication that they can take. Um, and then uh, there may be some psychological factors involved as well. Um, you know, not perceived, you know, they don't perceive the risk of the, 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 the condition to be uh, or to exceed the risk of taking a medication. Uh, they may have seen on the internet that this medication can cause side effects. They may have seen commercials from lawyers asking them to call them if they've taken a particular medication. So naturally they have an anxiety about taking that particular medication. So again, we have to overcome those concerns with, with education and communication with the patient. And how do we overcome non-adherence? And as I mentioned, talk to the patient. So, so really key is patient education. Ash mentioned it earlier. Um, really talking to them about what the risks are uh, uh, with atrial fibrillation and how we can reduce those risks with proper treatment. 
Um, and, and really, uh, there are a multitude of ways to communicate now. Uh, we talked about technology from a patient perspective of being able to screen for uh, atrial fibrillation. Well, now we have technology to communicate with patients. We can to send text messages to them to say, hey, time to come pick up your medication. We notice you, you're late a couple of days. Come on in and, and get your medication refill. Um, so there's those sorts of technologies. Um, there are pill boxes, you know, simple pill boxes. They've been around for years, but vitally important. Um, Ash mentioned earlier how he had atrial fibrillation um, and fortunately he did not have to take anticoagulation therapy. I've had illnesses and unfortunately, I can't follow through on my therapy. I can't remember to take it. So I have to have a pillbox myself to remind myself to take the take medications. And so I think it's really important. And when you, you introduce other disease states and other medication therapies, um, it, it, it builds in terms of the ability to adhere to therapy. And so very important to implement pillboxes or blister packs are great things. Um, you can get as advanced as digital dispensers. Um, there's mobile apps now. Um, you can educate your patients about what is a good app to utilize to remind yourself uh, to take your medications. The smartwatches have built-in uh, reminders and apps that they can use. And then phar many pharmacies are using automated phone calls for adherence and refill reminders. Um, continuing on with uh, other approaches to improve adherence, um, you know, we talked about the different settings of pharmacists. Um, pharmacists in the hospital settings are key for medication reconciliation. If a patient is diagnosed with atrial fibrillation in the hospital, now they have new medications that are being added as they're being discharged. Um, so what medications are they to continue upon uh, discharge to their home? And what medications are they to discontinue. And so that's medication reconciliation, and that's an important role for really all providers to make sure that the patients are taking the appropriate medications they're supposed to. Um, simplifying medication regimens can help a great deal. Um, once daily dosing of medications, many formulations now are available that are once daily. Obviously, adherence improves with once daily medications versus twice or three times daily uh, dosing. Um, but, but really, um, you know, telling the patient, you know, what medications can they take at the same time um, if they are taking multiple uh, times a, a day medications. 90-day supplies can uh, decrease the transportation issues, for example, of coming into the pharmacy once a month. Um, automatic refills, where you time all their uh, medications to refill at the same time so that they're not having to come back multiple times a month to get uh, medications. Um, there's adherence packaging, as I mentioned. Those are things like the blister packaging, where all their medications are packaged in a blister pack um, so that they would take all their morning in, uh, meds at once, uh, all their evening or afternoon meds at once. Um, these can all be helpful. Looking for ways to reduce cost. Um, sometimes if cost is an issue for a particular patient, are there coupons that are available? Are there uh, manufacturer programs in which the patient can be placed into to decrease cost? And of course, talking to them about adverse effects, what to look for and to notify you and their and or their primary care provider should they um, have any of those adverse effects. Joe, Ash, that was a great overview.
we talked about um, screening, we talked about diagnosing, we talked about treatment, um, the rationale for screening, why we should do that, the concerns with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, and importantly, um, not only treatment, but also importantly, um, improving medication adherence in patients taking anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation. Now, as, as both you and Ash clearly point out, we have to work collaboratively with our clinical colleagues to really move patients through the system um, and bridge a gap between patients and all members of the healthcare team to improve the screening, the diagnosis, and importantly, the treatment. And again, um, we can't emphasize enough, especially in pharmacists, medication adherence. So um, before we conclude the program, um, make sure you review and download the resources that we provide it. Um, please feel free to share. Um, we think this is important, and we like to, um, um, we're more than happy to have this um, disseminate out to other healthcare practitioners to help with screening and managing atrial fibrillation. And with that, um, that ends our discussion for today. Again, thank you again, um, Joe and Ash. Um, great insights today. Uh, we all hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice. And again, um, thank you for participating today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KMF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.